Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join us on yet another sunny day here in the capital. I'm Matthew O'Neill, and today, as always, we ensure that we have a variety of distinct perspectives on leadership. First, we're joined once again by Lisa Davies, Innovation Consultant at Attentus, a business focused on providing consultancy services in innovation, strategy, and business turnaround. Lisa, welcome. Hello, Matthew. Now, it's been a few months uh, since I interviewed you last. Uh, The world has changed significantly uh, in the intervening time. I'm sure the listeners would like to know uh, what has changed at Attentus. Yes, it's been um, quite an interesting time. We've accelerated a number of projects as a result of the current climate, kind of taking not necessarily the sort of opportunity of time, um, but but looking at the circumstances and kind of thinking, actually, this is an opportunity to kind of create some some jobs and some economic growth uh, ourselves as well as helping our clients. So that's what we've been doing at Attentus. Now, of course, COVID-19 has created a change in the way that everyone uh, is operating. How have you uh, changed in the way that you're running Attentus to comply with, A, the government's uh, restrictions on uh, social distancing, uh, but also the new ways in which people are doing business? It's quite interesting, actually, because the the other project areas that I was focusing on was already quite remote. It was pretty um resilient space anyway so any kind of business growth areas that I kind of look at I, I test uh, resilience w- w- within that and so effectively previously all the work was being done by um, telephone and if it was kind of face-to-face that was for key meetings and that still kind of remains the same so now it's just if there's any legal documents that actually need witnessing then we, we will look at how we can manage that but otherwise it pretty much stayed the same for us actually. Now, uh, of course, you were recently quoted in an article uh, for the Leaders' Council News Service stating that, uh, quote, if we use calm language, every business leader, employee, and self-employed person can make rational decisions, end quote. Do you feel that we've been using uh, too hot-headed terminology in the way in which uh, we as a society have communicated messages around COVID-19? And uh, do you feel that we should have taken a different approach? And what's the benefit of all this? Yes, I think... You know, I think there's value in um, government and and where, you know, there's a key aspect of, around safety using certain language. But even there, they're very careful to use language that is about sort of remaining calm. I do think as a society, there is, you know, a hype. And I, and I think that hype is just a natural thing that has kind of passed over from marketing type of hype and, and getting that kind of bars and thing going around and so I think there is more of a tendency to use hot-headed language that is more you know bringing someone quite present into the now and they're not necessarily appreciating that this doesn't help people make rational decisions and it may get you some clients in the short term however I think you know once the time has passed if people feel I didn't make a rational decision there in in our procurement of that particular service then you've already affected the relationship there. So I think there's, there's definitely value in, in choosing your language more carefully in any marketing or discussion material that you have, even though the times are quite uh, challenging. And I think it demonstrates resilience if you're able to be more cautious with your words as well. Mm. 
Well, we have seen uh, a few uh, own goals in marketing uh, in the past few weeks, uh, trying to tie in uh, the virus with with some sort of uh, scheme that they're having a, a well-known uh, high street uh, department store chain uh, has had a particularly depressing um, uh, marketing slogan. Uh, do you feel that companies should try and steer clear of any reference uh, to uh, COVID-19? I think they should be honest. I think um, I think if you're if you're using it, or you're going to, for example, say we're offering a service for a particular group of sick people because they're doing more work or they've you know got a tougher time at the moment, then be sure that that's actually a genuine gift that that's actually happening. If people aren't able to use the service because they're too busy then it really then comes back to being, well, that's just a marketing ploy. It's not actually costing the business that much to do that. And I do think that the businesses that help and have donated, um, you know, they understand that, you know, this isn't about the time of of doing marketing. This is about really helping out and and coming together. Naturally, without them even realising it, they're probably going to have a better brand loyalty or brand recognition for doing that but it's important that it comes from the, the right place. So, I, yeah, personally, I, I would avoid it. You know, there were some people that will say, well, great, there's a bargain there or, you know, there's a benefit from that, so I'll take the discount. And people, there'll be still people, consumers or some businesses that will say, well, I'll take advantage of, of that, what's an offer, even though it's labelled up in that way and I don't like it, it's very distasteful. Mm. Um, I personally would stay clear of it. And it's going to go down the history books. So from a marketing perspective, it's going to be sitting there and you're going to be judged by history as well. Oh, absolutely. I mean, we all uh, think back uh, to the marketing of asbestos pajamas for children in the in the 30s <laughs> and 40s, uh, you know, asbestos, the uh, miracle fiber, uh, that sort of thing. The last thing, uh, and obviously the, the, the worst of them all, the, the diet candy, A-Y-D-S, pronounced AIDS, uh, said lose weight with AIDS, which came out in 1980. Very uh, unfortunate. Uh, so it is difficult uh, to look into the future and think how people are going to perceive you. But also there are some very specific things that you can avoid, and you're absolutely right. Now, I'd like to uh, switch topics for a, a, a moment, still talking about COVID-19. But uh, as we discussed in our last conversation, you are... Uh, you were a contributor uh, to uh, a, a paper entitled Deprivation of Liberty. Uh, now, mm-hmm. when it comes to uh, the public health measures that have been uh, put in place uh, by government and governments around the world, uh, there is no doubt that they are in the public's interest. But where do they cross into civil liberties violations? It, I, I think this is very interesting, and I think it brings to the fore, actually, just how much um, we we can be, begin to appreciate what deprivation does, deprivation of liberty, deprivation potentially of um, our rights to speak our own opinions. Um, so I think it's I think it's interesting. I think we've got it's it's a very difficult balancing act that's kind of going on. And I know that almost for what people are experiencing in society, those that are then in kind of more restrictive environments, so custodial environments and things like that, 
their level of movement has gone down even further and their risk level um, of contracting the virus has gone up as well. So they will have a, you know, a more extreme version of, of what many of us are, are going through. So I think it's interesting to look at what is deprivation of liberty, when does it happen, what can we help with and, and how long should it be for, what is a reasonable amount of time and what are the consequences of doing that versus the reasons for doing it. And I, I'm already aware of um, some of the suicide rates or certain suicides that have happened um, potentially triggered by the deprivation of liberty. Well, there's also questions surrounding uh, the, the fundamental role of the state in individuals' lives. Uh, we're uh, speaking at a time where the government's going to be rolling out the contract tracing application uh, in that of uh, that uh, avails uh, to basically state surveillance on every single uh, man, woman, and child in the nation. Um, when is enough enough? Again, I think it's quite challenging, and again, it is something that with time is, is easier to judge and you wouldn't necessarily know when it's gone too far until maybe a little bit further down the line because even if you do use you know very good constructive language there will still be an element of fear we're doing this because there's a, a risk here um, and I think in order to know whether something enough whether enough is enough is is are we getting true information from um, the government and from the states uh, around the risks and are they comparative and fair to other types of risks that we encounter with our lives as well. And I think it's until you start doing a bit more of that contrasting that you can judge whether the measures are too much or not. Now, uh, on a uh, on a different note, um, you are uh, very much committed uh, to the community value and benefits of public houses, bars, restaurants, and the like. Uh, with uh, the social distancing and the restrictions that we've put into place uh, to save lives, um, obviously these places had have had to close, and some people are trying to make up uh, for the void by using various video conferencing applications to have communal drinks. Uh, but what is the what is the detrimental side of losing uh, that that commu- community gathering place? So yes, I think these these areas are absolutely fundamental, and it's interesting, particularly say for you know the public houses how there's been a decline in that particular sector over the years anyway. And I think this is, you know, sort of the nail in the coffin, as it were. But I think what we're going to find, as much as people might do some virtual gatherings with um, with their own thinking hand and things like that, it isn't the same as, as being together. And even with social distancing, there is a huge benefit to actually seeing people face-to-face um, your body language, and there is a more energy involved in that kind of exchange in that environment. So I think in the long term, we're not going to lose them altogether. I think there's just a human need to be able to go and be social. Um, I think in the intervening period, I think there are things that the sector could do more collectively to be able to, to bridge that and, and strengthen their brands and bring people together. 
so that you know they it wasn't such a hard start to go back again when when things kind of fully open up again normally i think the issue that we're going to have potentially is in the future if there are other types of uh, viruses or things whether these same measures will come back in again and as strict as they have and i think that's going to be what's really tough is, is if a sector is going to have to deal with that kind of cost measures that cost base of of not knowing whether they can be open throughout the whole season or throughout the whole year and, and i think that might be a bigger question but i definitely think human beings want to be social they need to be social and i, I think those sectors will somehow survive, but I think it needs to be in a different form. Now, uh, just as you said, we've seen businesses change the way they operate in response to COVID-19. Do you feel that this changed way of doing business uh, will or should be sustained in the post-COVID world? Or do you think that we should go back to some form of the way in which uh, we have always done things? Again, I think People may feel that there's huge efficiencies in not having to travel, huge efficiencies in being able just to be on a video call and things like that. If companies stay with that kind of thing, I think after a while they realise that they're losing out on some really key communication methods. And being in the office together allows you to understand what's going on in each other's lives. You pick up on the little bits of information and you can then tell, you know, what are my resources looking like? Um, can we put more workloads on them? What are the risks with this? There's all sorts of information that gets passed on outside of meetings and, and just things that you overhear and understand. And there's a culture as well that exists uh, within an office as well. And that's much harder uh, to actually replicate on, you know, on a, on a remote-based system. Mm. So I would encourage companies to say, the social aspect is really important and communication is happening all of the time and you risk shutting off uh, some of those communication things. But I do think there's value in potentially changing the way a working day looks like. It doesn't necessarily have to be nine to five and we could certainly ease pressures on uh, transport and the capacity issues that we've had obviously for a number of years anyway um, to, to being way more flexible in that. But I do think there should be some and core hours of the day or some days of the week that it's really important for teams and companies to kind of uh, get together. And you also know who you're working with and you've got that sense of identity and belonging and you can't get that in the same way, I don't think, on, on a virtual platform. I hope maybe tech can prove me wrong, but um, we, we can't change our, our biology and ha- how we get affected by moving around and, and being in, you know, in the same room as somebody else. Well, I can't, I can't agree more. Um, one does feel as if one's in solitary confinement, uh, you know, with limited visiting rights through a plexiglass window. I, uh, I definitely look forward to the point where I can get back and, and see people and be out and do things. Uh, it's just a question of, of when and how. Um, the other question that's on the lips of almost everyone is how do we restart the economy? How do we restart big businesses and enable them not just to uh, survive but to thrive and also at the same time uh, care for their peoples? Um, What are your ideas on this? I think this is the opportunity to be fairly radical, actually, and the opportunity 
to do, you know, attempt to more than one thing, as it were, and, and maybe a few more revenue streams. And not, I mean, in the past, it looked at like being diversification. Obviously, that does lower risk. But I do think there's obviously benefits to being in, in different sectors or delivering your your benefit to your customer. Or for example, airlines, you've got to ask yourself, what was it you were giving your customer? Was it just transport or was it something else? And therefore, can your brand go further and do something else? And I think really this situation is just a little bit of a, a wake-up call for some of those organizations that were very much thinking, this is what we do. This is our business. And it's sort of a natural tunnel vision that we all do. Um, and I think it's just an opportunity to kind of really rethink and also rethink business models, rethink how are you charging your customers, um, what are their problems, what is it that we can solve for them. And, you know, I there, there was the industrial revolution that kind of happened and there's many reasons why that kind of came together. And I kind of think this is ideal as a catalyst uh, for businesses, particularly large businesses, to completely rethink and to, to open the doors to more uh, investment opportunities and, and deliver to either a wider audience um, or to, to provide a, a deeper service to people. Now, of course, uh, there are going to have to be considerations uh, at the end of this. Uh, and restarting any sort of economy is it's like restarting a car after it's been parked for six months. It's going to take some some fits and starts and tries. Uh, what are some of the big pitfalls you think uh, that big businesses might fall into and how can they avoid them? Um, I think one of the biggest ones is is doing what you've done before and there's a sense of familiarity. So, okay, let's just restart this um, almost in the same way it was or restart and we're going to price in the same way that we did before. Um, so I think there's, that could be a, a large pitfall. And as, as a result, whatever your business model will depend on what your, your financing will kind of look like. I think there's also a huge opportunity here to train staff. And if, if companies are training staff at the moment, uh, whilst um, you know they may not be able to be fully productive, then they're going to come back a lot stronger because they've got a greater skill set. They've got a wider uh, ability to think across different areas. They're going to be the companies that are going to do well when they restart. But failure to train and to think, right, we're just getting on with the job now um, could be a, a big mistake. And, and even from a you know military perspective, when you go out and mobilize, there's still a period of training that's done. And I think it would be good to take that mobilization kind of approach and it, do some key training um, so that people are more prepared for any of the upheavals that might might come along. So a phased reintroduction would probably be the best way of going forward. Sorry, say that again? So a phased reintroduction. I think companies should should take that approach, not not necessarily that um, that's what, what's enabled uh, by the government, but I, I think it, it would be, yes, I think definitely being more structured and, and more you know project-based in your approach to this and ramping back up um, rather than just turning the, the switch back on. Now, aside from COVID-19, what are the greatest challenges that will affect uh, your sector in particular in the coming decade? So, the what sector? Your sector in particular in the coming decade. 
Um, I mean, we're in the consultancy sector. Um, and so I think that the, the challenges could be around genuinely being able to provide support that's of value to organisations. I think those that can't think differently enough or are not able to adjust to, you know, challenging, you know, true kind of crisis situations, it's not a word I want to use, but to that kind of significant upheaval, um, then I think that particular sector is, is going to struggle. And I think, for example, in um, those that are administrators and things like that, they, they have the opportunity, as it happens, to actually say, why, right, okay, we're not, we're going to see how many businesses we can actually turn around rather than how many businesses we are actually just going to sell off what components we can do um, and, and just pay off the, the creditors. So there is some opportunity, but there, there is risk that people won't be thinking differently enough and they'll just continue with the same thinking that was there before, but actually probably slightly more concerned and more reticent of the future and less likely to take some risks as well. Lisa, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on the show today, and I very much hope that we can do this again very soon. Lisa, the best of health and luck to everyone at Attentis. Thank you. Thank you, Matthew. I'd like to thank Lisa Davies for coming on the program with us once again, and the entire team at Attentis for continuing to raise standards. And now, if you haven't heard it before, is my exclusive interview with our chairman, Lord Blunkett. Lord Blunkett, welcome. Thank you very much. It's very good to be with you. Um, well, of course, uh, nothing is being said uh, at the moment other than COVID-19, uh, which uh, we must touch on. Um, what would your message be to small businesses who are trying to keep going? Well, I think the last ones standing will be the ones that thrive when we get back to some sort of normality. So it's have confidence and courage Obviously, take advantage as far as you can of the government help. I think that Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, has gone about as far as you could have expected Mm -hmm. in the circumstances. There are obviously small businesses that fall between the cracks. Those who uh, don't have um, defined premises, can't benefit from the business rate waiver, uh, have not really been able to demonstrate that they can uh, adhere to the PAYE for furloughing staff and, of course, whether they can receive the the grant, 10000 or 25000 all, all of those who can uh, are obviously able at least to benefit from that for the time being and look to the future. But I think the second thing to say, and they don't need me to tell them this as a politician who, who did once do a business studies qualification, which is that it will be a different world and being able mm. to think about how that world will look in a year's time and be creative about it and learn from not just what's happening to you at this moment in time, but to others around you and the sector that you're working in, that will be really important. Do you feel that the long-term effects of uh, the COVID-19 outbreak uh, will in some ways be positive uh, for British industry? Well, only in the sense that people are having to be creative, they're having to adjust and innovate Therefore, they're thinking about more productive, if you like, greater productivity ways 
of delivering the same service or delivering the same products. And in that sense, I think we'll have temporarily at least very much higher unemployment than we've become used to, but we'll probably have a burst of productivity, Mm -hmm. which will help with the recovery, whether it will help with the inequity of the way in which our economy is imbalanced, both between services and productivity and and, uh, production of goods and services, I'm not sure. What we will need to try and do is to ensure that the geographic imbalance that exists is, as far as humanly possible, is dealt with by both Uh, the entrepreneurship and innovation from the bottom up and targeted government help, which will still be needed. And we are now in the throes of the kind of borrowing that we saw back in 2008 to save the banking and economic system. We're we're having to do that to save the whole of our productive business and Mm -hmm. commerce. And I think that will have to be sustained for some time. Do you feel that people will take a second look at global supply chains in the wake of this outbreak? I think there's going to be much more creative ways of using local supply and linking up inside sectors much more effectively. And I hope that the Leaders' Council will be able to play a part in that in the sense that people who Mm -hmm. have something in common, a synergy in terms of what they're delivering, whether it's a service or whether it's manufacturing or whatever, uh, we'll be able to see that there's a, a, a good outcome from n- knowing the sector better, linking with people, not just geographically locally, but those in this country who may not have been on the radar in terms of what they produced for the supply chain. And, of course, um, ensuring, because there's quite a lot of fraud going on as we speak with um, people getting into cyber attacks, that they'll also take account of going into the the cybersecurity side effectively as well. The more we are online, the more people who are working from home, the more vulnerable those businesses and their supply chain become. And that's something to think about as well. How important is strong leadership at the moment? Well, I actually think that it's brought to the fore leadership in a whole range of areas from Obviously, government itself, and there's been ups and downs with the Prime Minister's uh, severe illness, but all the way through the public and private sector, people have, to use the jargon, stepped up. And they've shown uh, local, regional, national level the kind of leadership that Britain historically was very good at. Regrettably, we've not seen seen the same on the international scene for Mm. all kinds of reasons, Uh, but maybe we will in future. So I think out of this will come experience of people who have seen an opportunity to do good as well as seen an opportunity to provide a good uh, service or goods, uh, including, for instance, shortages uh, for the health and social care Uh, system, um, the food chain and the like, Uh, but also I think in terms of seeing the the synergy between the private and the voluntary sector and using people's uh, commitment to each other in a very positive way. I'm not sentimental about this. Things will revert, Mm -hmm. but actually I think there is a kind of moment of moral judgment of people feeling that they've got a role to play outside 
the immediate survival that they're engaged in. And if we can hang on to a little bit of that social responsibility, that will be a very positive outcome. Absolutely. Now, what's your broad view of how the government is responding to this? Are you broadly supportive of their measures? Well, it may surprise people to hear that that I have been very supportive. Of course, there's been legitimate criticisms about the speed of response on protective equipment and on issues relating to testing. But my own view is very similar to the challenge that was made to the Prime Minister of Italy when people said, why didn't you close Italy down faster? And he said, a fortnight before we did it, I would have been considered to be a madman and nobody would have agreed to do it Mm. if I'd tried to move too quickly. And I I think that's something that we need to reflect on here in the UK. We we may have seen the signals elsewhere uh, across the world and taken them more seriously at the time. Hindsight is a wonderful thing. But as someone who's uh, had his life in uh, the opposite uh, political party to the, the present government, I think that with some hiccups and mistakes, they've not done a bad job in what has been incredibly difficult circumstances. And you're absolutely right. In a a liberal uh, democracy that we live in, it's it's very difficult for people to swallow orders given to them from government. Um, Well, the the UK and and the US, and to some extent uh, the Scandinavian countries, have a very different interest, uh, history and, and therefore interest in maintaining the freedom to decide and the persuasion and mm. consent that's required. Uh, those countries that have experienced one way or another totalitarianism over the last century have a slightly different way of coming at this. Mm. I don't want to exaggerate it, but I think that that's why getting the balance right of getting people to go along with what you want them to do in their interests as well as the nation as a whole is a sensible proportional balance. And I think we now need to adjust to the coming out of the crisis gradually, uh, readjusting to recovery uh, in the same way. Now, something you've mentioned recently on this balance is uh, the police overreach and the enforcement of the COVID-19 uh, structures that have been put in place. What have they done right, and where have they gone too far? Well, I think that they were interpreting what was not necessarily as clear right. advice as it might have been for all kinds of reasons, because people were feeling their way. I think what's come out of it has been uh, a demonstration by local police services in some parts of the country that they could get people to do what was needed without the heavy hand of drones overhead Mm. or people being told that they shouldn't be walking in the street because this was all about self-isolation, not incarceration. It was about getting people not to pass the infection on to each other and therefore to provide distance rather than to make our lives a misery. Those police services that adopted that policing by consent and chipping people along did really well. Those who went over the top, I think, soon got a very substantial pushback. And one of the strengths of our democracy is that you could have that debate. People could say, I'm terribly sorry, we we think the police force in our area has gone over the top. And that in itself is a constraint and uh, a readjustment. That's another strength of um, living in a country where you can have opinions and express them without actually being thought to be a fool. 
Now, of course, uh, the government has faced criticism uh, that they were slow to react, uh, and Boris Johnson wasn't present at the early COVID-19 COBRA meetings. Now, uh, Number 10 has claimed that this is normal practice. Uh, the health secretary often chairs COBRA meetings uh, related to health. Uh, does this tally with your experience as a secretary of state, or would you have expected the PM uh, to be more hands-on during the initial stages? I think different prime ministers do have a very different style. And Boris's style, which I think will now be considerably adjusted, was very swashbuckling. In some senses, delegating is a good thing, uh, as every leader of every business or public service knows. Those who try to pull too much into themselves end up with a massive bottleneck, a great uh, failure of trust, and the inability of people to show what they're worth and to, to demonstrate their capability. So I, I, I'd be very wary of jumping in and saying he was wrong to delegate the essential COBRA meetings. What I was surprised about was that he didn't um, chair the first couple because mm -hmm. my experience with Tony Blair for the eight years I was in cabinet was that Tony was a great delegator, but he would get a grip to begin with watch what the difficulties were, and then give people direction and confidence to be able to get on with it. So looking back, I think Boris himself probably thinks, God, I wish I'd spotted the signals from elsewhere in the world more rapidly, and I'd just been there. However, this also raises another issue. All of us in positions of leadership need good teams around us. Mm -hmm. I think after this is over, he will be assessing those who really did step up and those who demonstrated their inadequacy, I think we'll probably end up in a year's time with a much stronger cabinet than we have today. Well, absolutely. And of course, uh, we've seen a, a significant uh, drop in the visibility of uh, certain special advisors like Dominic Cummings uh, during this uh, entire period. So it'd be interesting to see how that pans out. Um, well, yeah. it's certainly readjusted the role of those behind the scenes with those who should be taking the decisions having received advice. Obviously, there's been a complete transformation in the profile of experts, if I might use that term, who'd previously been denigrated. Mm -hmm. Scientists, medics, people with behavioral science uh, understanding. My only criticism was, were we getting wide enough advice? Were we narrowing it too much to a couple of key centers in London? But that's because I've always been adverse to everything being London-centric. I think there's great expertise, wisdom, experience out in the sticks, and uh, we should use it. Uh, rightly so. Um, now, was part pandemic planning part of your time as a minister, particularly perhaps uh, when you were Home Secretary? Well, it was, but it was on the back of risk arising out of counter-terrorism measures. Right. Uh, I was the Home Secretary for three months when the attack took place in September 2001 on the World Trade Center and beyond. But we did an enormous amount of uh, scenario planning, both desktop and, and real. On the back of that, it was very heavily orientated to future developing terrorism risk. I certainly got involved with talking about pandemics. I remember being at a seminar in Edinburgh where the university there had done a lot of work itself on the issue of pandemics. And, of course, we, we saw SARS and other things emerging. 
I, I think it would. People criticised the government for not picking up the report from 2015, five years ago. I think that what happens is human nature kicks in. You deal with what you're immediately faced with. Mm. You you can you can sponsor reports. And this is true of business planning, of course, as well, and scenario planning for what business continuity will look like, recovery plans for business, what will happen if um, there's a cyber attack, what happens if there's an energy shutdown. These kind of things you you can look at, but you're immediately turning your eyes to what's in front of you. And had we picked up a bit more on the danger from Ebola and SARS and what have you in the past, then we might have said, what if something hits us in the developed nations that we don't have a vaccine for, Mm -hmm. that we can't immediately whisk up uh, protective materials or equipment or, for that matter, medicines that help with recovery, all of which we now see are a danger. I think this will make an enormous difference to the planning for for the years ahead. I hope it will be widened so that we don't just look at what's happened. But very rarely do you see something exactly repeat itself some of the circumstances will be, but others won't. So that's why I've put emphasis in what I talk about on looking at the other virus, the cyber attack uh, scenario, mm-hmm. which could be just as dangerous in a, uh, a world of just-in-time provision. One of the miracles of uh, the modern developed world, except for the very poor, has been the distribution of food, a lot of it on computerized, uh, technologically advanced systems, if that were to come down, we'd be in real trouble. So I think we need to think those sort of scenarios as well. So have a full plan across uh, both sectors, uh, biological warfare, pandemics, and uh, cyber warfare. Yes, and to do so on different levels, I think, again, thinking of thinking global but acting local, we Mm. need a lot more to think about what would happen if something took shape that actually broke down those national and global chains and how we would cope. And without, uh, obviously, we've got enough fear and anxiety to last a lifetime without creating even more anxiety. We can think about those things for the future in a more rational way, I think. Now, aside from the physical uh, threat of the virus, one of the things that people are vastly worried about is the effect on uh, the economy, not just national economy, but also the world economy. Um, now, it, it has been said by certain parties, um, and uh, I'd like to garner your uh, thoughts on this. Is there a danger of the effects of the lockdown being even worse than those of the virus? Were it be the prolonged I fear that that balance would tip the other way. It is about proportionality. It is about balance. It's the wisdom of Solomon, really, to to get the moment right when you start to move and then to move quickly. There's no doubt whatsoever that we are stocking up, not just on the economic and employment front, which will be devastating enough, but on the health and social well-being front, enormous challenges and they will need careful handling because there's a lot of people whose lives 
for a variety of reasons, are at risk in the future on a scale that we've been dealing with over the, the immediate handling of the pandemic, concentrating really hard on those affected by COVID-19, those sadly who have died or been seriously incapacitated, that will roll over into the economic, the social, the mental health and cultural well-being of the nation. And that will need all of us to pull together as well. Absolutely. Now, do you believe the government's doing enough for business? I think that the speed of reaction once the scale of the pandemic was clear was very good. I've praised Ricky Sunak for his action. Uh, remember, a chancellor who only just come into office was planning to deliver the budget in the middle of March and has had three, at least three equivalent budgets since. I think he's handled it very well, understandably worried now about what we're doing to our economy. The level of borrowing is sustainable because of low interest rates, but it reaches a point, of course, where it tips over so that you can't then do the kind of structural investment requirements that the government were laying out before and in the March budget. And those will have their consequences as well as a planned payback over many years. I think we've learned something over the last few months. We, we needed to take immediate action. We don't want another round of austerity equivalent from 2010 through to 2019. I don't think the nation, on the back of what's happened and the challenges we have, could take that. And therefore, we need a different plan, economic plan, over a much longer period, just as we did from the Second World War all the way through to 2002, when the final American loans were paid off. Now, of course, uh, one thing that's on everyone's lips, um, how much longer do you believe uh, that the lockdown can go on for? I believe that we need to be substantially back in action as an economy in June. This obviously is led in terms of places where people would meet in large numbers, having to uh, adjust to the fact that it will be longer for them. And sadly, that will involve business closures. It's why the Chancellor extended the furlough scheme to the end of June. Mm -hmm. But unless we, we get things moving in June, I think we'll run into the summer where all kinds of services and industries will have a chain reaction effect. And what happens with one will then have a major impact on another. And then you get the skittle effect where things get knocked down that you hadn't perceived were going to be affected. So I very much, if I were in government, and I always think of things in that context, what would I do if I were in government? I would be on the side from... The second week in May, on the side of the Hawks, in terms of saying we've got to start moving and we've got to do so with the collaboration and cooperation of the public, who have got the message, who did behave, who responded magnificently. Let's try and get back, perhaps you know, doing things differently for a time, but substantially getting back to business as usual. Unless we do that, then those areas that can't and wouldn't expect to be back in action immediately 
get pushed further into the middle of the year and the autumn, and then they become unsustainable. Now, of course, um, one of the other major developments we've had recently are the changes in the uh, the Labour Party. So if we could just uh, speak on the Labour Party for uh, a while. Um, this might sound like uh, an obvious question, but uh, how does uh, Secure uh, differ from Mr Corbyn? Well, I'm biased because I believe the Labour Party um, has come out of four and a half years of a black hole of a nightmare mm. uh, where it neither represented a, a, a credible opposition nor a, an electable government and the combination was to let those who supported the Labour Party and needed some of its policies uh, let them down very badly. Sir Keir Starmer both is a highly intelligent uh, professional lawyer who as Director of Public Prosecutions led the service well uh, had to take difficult decisions at a time of austerity, understands the world beyond Labour members, but has been able to do business with those who originally supported Jeremy Corbyn mm-hmm. and was able to command support from them. His creation of a balanced shadow ministerial team has been very encouraging. Um, I supported Lisa Nandy, who he's made Shadow Foreign Secretary, because I thought she understood the north of England and uh, the uh, the disaffected uh, Labour, former Labour voters. But I believe that Sakir has taken on board those who have something really sensible to offer. And I believe he will be both a, a great leader of the opposition more importantly, will then present himself as a credible alternative prime minister. And all governments need an alternative government at their shoulder. Mm. Uh, it was true of us from 97, and it took the Conservatives some time to recover and to get to that position, but they did, and the Labour Party will, and that's crucial for our democracy. All of us need to understand and appreciate that a living, breathing functioning democracy requires uh, a credible, confident, and uh, in many ways uh, supportable opposition, as well as a government that we clearly want to do well, because none of us want, as we didn't with the COVID crisis, none of us want the government to fail. We want to see our economy recover. We want our social well-being to be taken into account. We want to overcome deep-seated inequality and poverty, and we want to do it with enterprise and entrepreneurship and business playing their role, and that is about leadership nationally, locally, in the private and the public sector, people with ideas, with confidence, with the ability to pull teams around them, above all, to have some idea of what it is they want to achieve and a very good idea as to how to achieve it. Now, of course, one of the biggest problems Secure is facing will be tackling the party's anti-Semitism problem. Uh, There has been a recent internal report that has been quite damning. Uh, What's your response uh, to that report, and what does Secure need to do in response? Well, there are two reports. One which is being produced by the Quality and Human Rights Commission, uh, which he will, and has already indicated, will implement in full. The second was a leaked report put together by the supporters of Jeremy Corbyn, 800 pages of 
private uh, interchanges on social media, which he has, uh, he has, has set up an investigation to identify uh, who did it, who leaked it, what the content was, does it have any salience and lessons for us, and where necessary action will be taken. So I hope that as he moved very quickly to reassure the Jewish community, so he will be able to take the necessary steps to back up that reassurance with the kind of actions that says that this was a blight on a historic great political party that all of us, all of us were ashamed of. We've been able to put that behind us and to move on to facing the future with confidence. What's the one king, uh, key thing that Sakir needs to do to restore Labour as an election-winning party? I think Sakir Starmer's major challenge is to convince sceptical voters that Labour has not only reverted to a party that they can support because they can see it acting, developing, presenting as a credible alternative government, mm -hmm. but also that the lessons have been learned from the fiasco from 2015 onwards. In other words, there have to be very clear signals of substantial change, not just the right words, not just reassurance that we're not uh, going back to some of the crazier uh, policies, but actually that we've understood why the electorate rejected those policies so substantially in December 2019. If people get that message, they'll understand that the Labour Party has changed as it did in the 1980s and early 90s to become the electable government with the greatest majority and historic majority, even greater than 1945, which I was privileged to be able to take advantage of in 1997 when I joined the cabinet. Now, I know what your answer is going to be to this question, but uh, indulge me. Um, do you think Secure has what it takes to be PM? Yes, I do. I think he has the background, he has the experience, he has the professionalism, he has the forensic uh, mindset, and he has the confidence to have put a team around him which will ensure that it will work. And those elements are true of all leaders. Ideas, the ability to build a team, to have confidence in that team, uh, and to be able to demonstrate leadership in practice, sometimes at the most difficult times. And, you know, the Leaders' Council, those sharing their thoughts with uh, um, the kind of thing that we're doing now uh, with uh, a podcast, but also joining us in linking up in that network of people who can support and help each other and learn from mm -hmm. each other. That is what needs to be done in politics as it needs to be done in business. Thank well, you very much indeed, Matthew. Well, the thank you for coming on the, uh, the program. It's been a, an absolute pleasure, and I look forward to speaking with you again. Thank you very much, and good luck to all those listening in what has been a nightmare scenario. Good luck for the future. Have courage have confidence, and yes, listen to those who know more about business than I ever will. Thank you, Lord Blunkett. Thank you.
This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. I have been your host, Matthew O'Neill, and I'd like to thank our guests, Lord Blunkett and Lisa Davies of Attentus. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, other guests, or any other person therein associated.